Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Ben. Welcome again to Four Corners Church. Hey, in just a moment, we're going to turn to our message notes. It looks like this. There are a couple of announcements on the front and some dates on the back. But in the middle, you'll find the sermon notes for the second week of our Get Up message series. That's what that video is showing. A man who every morning, obviously, had gotten up and made his run up. And he kept a pile of rocks there to keep count. And we're going to be marking some ways that we need to get up. And in fact, the ways that the power of the resurrection can impact our lives in practical ways. I think you'll enjoy today. But before we get rolling into that, I want to introduce you to my friend Steve. Many of you know Steve. Steve, you got you and you and your wife were in not here on Easter Sunday. All right, did you did you backslide? Turn your back on church? What happened? We're we're trying new churches, but thanks for bringing it up. <laughs> nice. No, you were out of town for a job thing, right? You were yes. in Virginia yeah. with a big SHRM Society of Human Resource Management yeah. Managers convention, and you play a role in that organization. Um, and I really appreciate you looking all bright and shiny today. Absolutely. Are you directing airplanes or something? It's kind I of, am. I am. <laughs> hey, we're up here to tell folks about a cool thing coming up. It's the 4C India Rummage Sale that we have coming up in a few weeks, and uh, you are helping us lead outreach around here. Tell folks a little bit about the heartbeat of this event. What we're trying to do is reach the community by giving. Not only giving the donations that you have in your house, stuff that you may not want anymore, that's in good condition, but we're trying to bring people into the church that haven't been at the church that have a need. We're praying about that, and we know that God will bring people here to experience 4C in a different way and have a good inter interaction with us. So bottom line is, is we're asking people to clean out their house. We don't necessarily want their junk, right. but we would love to have the stuff they don't want anymore. We'd like them to donate that to the church. And you can begin to do that this Sunday, actually. Um, you, If you want to go home and get stuff, bring it back. We have a warehouse behind this stage. We'll, we will be storing and sorting and cleaning and labeling stuff in anticipation of the event. So that's one way people can help. By the way, if you bring your stuff, we're glad to give you a receipt for that so that you can uh, save a little bit of money on your taxes. What's another way, though, that people can engage beyond giving us their stuff? Well, you can volunteer for the event. We need people that will help on setup, help people that will help during the day actually doing the sale. And it's a ball. I'm telling you, it's the best evangelism thing you'll ever do is meeting people and giving them stuff. It's cool. And then we need some people to help clean up because the Salvation Army is going to come and pick up anything that we have left over. And we just need some bodies. There's sign-up sheets out on the Welcome Center. Good. So um, that's going to happen on a Saturday morning, the sale itself, right? And it's going to happen primarily in our lobby and out through the front doors. And so given our visibility here, all you have to do is invite your friends to come by. And that's folks who might need a little hand up or folks who are just looking for stuff. Because when you give your stuff and we sell it for, for you and for this project, your money is going to go towards the pot that we call 4C India. That's our church planting ministry in Kerala. It's also where about 50 young people are cared for by you. And this particular project is going to help us fund Pastor James, who leads that work, and his wife and hopefully their two kids coming over to visit us in the fall. That's what we're going to do with that money. And any, of course, any money left over, we'll just go to the general pot there to help them. So it's a very compelling reason. Uh, Steve, when James gets here, folks who are sponsoring kids, um, our church will hear from him. And this seven-year investment we have in him will really, I think, take form for folks. Now, so we talked about serving. We talked about giving. Is there any other ways people can help us with this project? You can pray for it and pray for the people who are going to come because they're going to fill this place. And uh, pray that you get moved yourself to move things along and bring things here. Uh, the thing that we really like is this outreach follows our vision of here, near, and far. Here, it's your stuff. 
part of the church that will take care of us. Near, it's going to reach the community that is around us. And it's part of our goal. And far, it's going to reach the people of India. And it's really cool that we're going to be able to do all three things through this event. Yeah, those are the three words we use to talk about outreach. And you're right, it hits all three of those. Any final thoughts about this outreach, Steve, you want to share with us? I'm geeked. you got to be there. It's going to be exciting. <laughs> this is, I'm wearing this clothes because this is how excited I am about this event. <laughs> Steve, thanks to you and your team for doing us. And for folks who want to help, you sign out at the information station in the lobby. You say thanks to Steve and his team for his help. Appreciate it. Mm. Man, I love it when we reach out. Hey, again, on the front of your message notes, there's a couple things I want to point out. This is not announcement time. We don't try to do a lot of announcements around here. I try to tell you about strategic opportunities for you to be involved. And the one at the top is the men's event. We're coming down to the wire on that. So if you intended to go to this event and have not yet clicked through to complete your registration, today would be a great day to do that. Every one of the giving stations right between these double doors here, in the lobby on the outside wall, and then at the information station, you can go right there and sign up right there for that event. The other event right here in the middle is the LeaderCast event. If you're a leader in any area of life, that is you lead at home, you lead in school, you lead at your work, this is the largest gathering of leaders globally at one time. And the event happens in Atlanta, but we simulcast here. And we have 32 open spots for people to receive a free ticket and serve the day of that event. You get here a little early. We make this place warm and welcoming for every guest that comes in. There'll be well over 100, maybe 150 people here from in and around the community. And if you would like to help us with this event, at the end of the service, I'm going to show you how you can receive one of those free 32 slots to come and serve and be a part. And then, of course, the final one there we talked about the rum and shell. So would you now open up your message notes and let's turn and talk about what's going on here. I want to talk with you about how the resurrection of Jesus makes a dramatic difference in our relationships. The resurrection of Jesus makes a dramatic difference in our relationships. Last Sunday was Easter. Around here, you guys did an incredible job. I went home with my heart just full. I was full because of what all happened in this place and just the worship together with you and your guests. And then on Tuesday morning in my inbox, I was even more filled because I discovered that we had 967 people in-house, which is really cool. Yeah, you can clap for that if you want. That's awesome. But here's, here's the cool one. Here's the cool one. 21 adults made decisions to follow Jesus with their life. And that's just amazing. And it shows that there's still power in the resurrection. And there's power when people who believe in the resurrection start putting into place activities in their life that show they believe in the resurrection. You invited your friends and family. And they came and you participated in worship. And you helped make this space look great. And you were warm and welcoming yourself. And then when we worshiped together and we gave the word and we gave people a chance to respond, they did. That's what happens. When people who are people of the resurrection begin to walk and live as if the resurrection really happened. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about that. And today, specifically, we're going to talk about how it shows up in relationships. Now, I believe that the basic teaching of Scripture that Jesus gave is still very true today. And you can take it to the bank. That the two things God cares most about in your life is, is that you love him with all your heart, with all that you are, and you give yourself over to him fully in worship. And I believe that if you'll love other people, it'll make a dramatic difference in this world. 
And I think it will make a difference in your life. And I want to show you from going back to the early pages of the Bible how the power of the resurrection can make a practical difference today in your life. And I have to take you all the way back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. You can go there with me if you like on your phone, on the side screens. And, of course, you can fact check me as we're doing this to make sure. All right, it's really good. Um, Doubling down. I actually found one typo. We'll see if you find it, all right? You can email me directly if you find it. My name is Billy Bob Joe at Four Corners Church. Dot com. All right. Hey, I want to take you back to uh, Genesis chapter 3. This is that interesting turn in the story of our Bible. Up to Genesis chapter 3, God has created all things are good. Humankind, the man and the woman, live in perfect paradise. They're at peace with God. The Bible says God comes down in the cool of the day and they talk. They're at peace with God. They're in harmony with creation. The earth has incredible productivity and the trees bear fruit and the ground gives up plentiful nourishment and the water comes and they have all that they need. They're not working the soil by the sweat of their brow. No, they just tend the garden and they're at peace with creation. They're at peace with God. They're at peace with creation. And very importantly for today, they're at peace one with another. The Bible uses this phrase to talk about it. They were naked, but they were not ashamed. They were naked, but they were not ashamed. And that refers to more than just physical nakedness. It refers to literally the complete vulnerability they experienced, but the complete comfort in their vulnerability. They were totally at peace one with another. That's Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And then in Genesis chapter 3, our focus for today, the story turns. At some point in all of this harmony, the man and the woman, well, they blow it. God had said to them, you can do anything you want except for this one thing. And, of course, that became the one thing that they did. They sinned. They went against the law of God. They went against his one rule. Some people have the idea that God is a God of rules. But in the first telling of humankind's interaction with God, God wasn't a God of rules. He was a God of opportunity. He was a God of peace. He was a God of connection. And it was one rule. Don't eat from this one tree. But the Bible says that one day, we don't know when, we don't know what the details, because the details aren't important to the story. What's important is what happens here and how it sets the course for humanity, a course that all of us still find ourselves in. What happens in this story is, is that one day the woman and the man are evidently walking together And she looks at the tree and says, that tree, that fruit looks pretty good. And then there's this interesting engagement with this serpent, and they're talking, which to me would be really strange. Um, I think I might would would run. No, I don't know. I don't like snakes anyway. I'm not a big fan. And so I'm thinking if one's trying to talk to me, I'm going to run. And at least if I don't run, I'm not going to talk back. So, but she does, she does, that's how the story goes, and we understand there's a lot going on here, but in the story, they engage, and the serpent says to her, hey, didn't God tell you you're not allowed to eat any of the fruit, which is an interesting spin on what God said. You can eat all the fruit except for this one, but in the temptation, the way it's presented back is God has basically limited you. And then she says, no, 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 we can eat everything but this one. And then the serpent says, but God knows if you eat this one, you'll kind of be like him. You'll kind of be like him. You're going to know not just the good things you know now, but you're going to actually know good and evil. And it 
interesting for us. It's not just that you're going to know it. You're going to like have experienced it. You're going to have the deepest firsthand knowledge of the good and the evil. And in that way, with that deeper knowledge that's been held from you, you're going to kind of be like God. And the fruit itself and all that went around that experience and the temptation boiled over. And the Bible says that Eve, that first woman, took and she ate. And she also gave it to her husband, who up to this point has been very, very quiet. He hasn't, been, he hasn't been talking at all, which is a major, major miss in his experience. There should have been some conversation between them. And they eat, and the Bible says immediately their eyes were opened. And this is the turning point in the story of the Bible where we go from good to dark. From where things are pretty much in harmony between God and humanity, humanity and creation, humanity to humanity, And we go to every one of those peaceful connections are broken. Instantly, the rebellion, the sin, breaks the intimate connection between humanity and God. And we're going to discover that one of the outcomes of this behavior was that the connection humanity had with the earth and how it easily gave up its nourishment, well, that's going to change forever. And for our purpose today, the connection that the man had with the woman, this nakedness but not ashamedness, that breaks as well. And we could relegate this to a story of the Bible, and we could debate in our freshman Bible classes and religion classes whether this is true and in what sense it's true. But I want to bypass all of that today, although that's an important discussion. You should have those discussions. And I want to talk about what we can learn from it. Because I think it's in the Bible for a reason. I think it's in the Bible for me because it happened. And I think it's in the Bible because it's meant to teach us about life, about God, and about us in a way that should compel us to take steps towards God. And I think as followers of Jesus today, we get a hint of the power of the resurrection in this story. You'll be like God, the serpent said. Every temptation tends to come back to that basic issue. I want what I want. And ultimately what I want is to set my own course and get what I want. Notice that when the serpent tempts Eve, he never says, become like me. He implies that her behavior can make her more free, more powerful, more godlike. You'll know what God knows. He never comes in total transparency and says, let me show you all the downside for your temptation. If he did, nobody would give in to temptation. If the enemy of your soul showed you what would happen when you follow those prompts he gives, when you follow those non-God prompts, if he showed you the full impact of that, you wouldn't be foolish. I wouldn't be foolish. We'd never do it if we could see the whole future before us. Men wouldn't cheat on their wives. They wouldn't do it because they would have in the moment before that behavior all the pain that's likely to happen as a result of that. Many of you would have never taken your first drink. Some of you would have never smoked your first cigarette. If you could see all that was going to happen as a result of that behavior, some of you would have never gone into that business arrangement that you kind of felt awkward about anyway, but you went ahead and did it. But the enemy never comes like that. He comes promising you something, but never shows you the fruit of those choices and where it will lead. And this is why we call it a temptation. That's what's going on here. 
And you know the story already enough now to know that they give in to the temptation. And I want to show you how giving into that temptation begins to break things. We want to pick up at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 and following. Now, I didn't have space in all of the message notes that you have in front of you to put all of this. So on the side screens, you can follow along with me. Genesis chapter 6, the second half of that verse. She took of it and she ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked And they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is where shame entered the world. There had never been any shame. There had never been any guilt. There had never been any regret. There had never been any pain. There had never been any fear. But now all of that possibility is opened. Not only would they know the good that God had provided for them. Remember he said creation is good. It is very good. Not only would they know the good. Now they would have knowledge also of evil. All the fruit of evil, shame, guilt, pain, fear. In fact, that's what I want to talk with you about, fear. Our first blank there at the top of your message notes goes like this. I make myself distant, or I make distance, if you will, to shorten it, because I fear exposure. I get distant. I make myself distant because I fear exposure. You ever wondered why it's hard to get close to some people? Do you ever wondered why those feelings you felt when you stood before an altar and you looked at your spouse now and said, I will love you forever, and you felt so awesome, why it was so hard after that? Have you ever wondered why it is that people have a hard time connecting, even good godly people in a church setting where everybody should get along and everything should be fine? You ever wondered why it's hard to connect at work with somebody who ideally is working with you towards the same goals and objectives in the same environment? You ever wondered why it was hard to connect? One of the reasons we're going to talk about today that it's hard to connect, why people have distance between them, is ultimately because of fear. I want to walk you through a little three-step process from the Scripture to show you how fear, how guilt, how shame actually destroys relationships and how the resurrection of Jesus speaks into all of those realities. Let's talk about the process that moves us towards distance. Here's the first blank right there. The first blank, if you just want to write the word shame. I'm going to show you in the Scripture where shame came. The next word and the next blank under that is the words cover up. After shame, there's a cover-up. And shame and cover-ups ultimately lead to distance. That's your third blank. Shame and cover-up leads to distance. Believe it or not, in the story of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, you're going to discover one of the reasons why it's so hard for people to connect. Why it's so hard for people who should be able to do life together with intimacy and peace and enjoyment find those qualities, peace, enjoyment, and intimacy, so hard to grab hold of. The story tells us all about it. Genesis chapter 3 in your message notes, verse 9 and 10. When the man and the woman had done the thing that they weren't supposed to do, the Bible says at the normal time, God comes down like he used to come down, and he calls out to the man and he says, where are you? This is the first time in the Bible we see God asking a question. And you should make a little mental note here. God never asks a question because he doesn't know the answer. He knows where he is. He asks questions like sometimes good parents do. 
He asks questions to get the person he's talking to to engage the process fully and maybe, hopefully, have some self-discovery in the process. He asks questions to get them to think about what's going on. Where are you? This is the first quotes we have from God to humanity. Where are you? That's not a bad question. Well, it's not the point I'm going to make today. This is a really good question for you to ask yourself from time to time. If God were to come down and ask you where you are, how would you answer him? Where are you in relationship to him? Where are you in relationship to the purpose for which he has created you? Where are you in relationship to the call upon your life? Where are you? It's a great question. So he looks at Adam. He looks for Adam in the garden and he says, where are you? He wants in this Adam to become a man who accepts responsibility for the fact that he had run and was hiding because he had done something he knew he shouldn't have done. He wanted him to accept responsibility. That Adam struggles with this because he's afraid. And fear in relationships leads to distance. And the antidote to that kind of fear that leads to distance is for the people in the relationship to accept the responsibility they have in the relationship. In fact, any transformation in any area of your life, including relationships, only happens after you accept the facts of who you are and what you've done and the facts of the responsibility that you have. For instance, as long as you think I've got a great marriage when you don't really have a great marriage... It's easy to ignore what's going on. But when you start thinking, you know, there are areas of growth in my marriage where I need to press in. And then you start going the next step and going, I have a responsibility to press into the growth of my marriage. It's not just on my spouse. It's not just on my environment. It's actually on me. In that moment, you have the opportunity to actually begin to experience growth. But fear will keep you from doing that. Fear will keep you from doing that. And fear will cause you not to address the issues that are right in front of you. Fear will actually cause you to cover them up. Those of you that have children in the home, or you did, and they were between about four and seven years old, this is when children really start to care deeply what it is you think about them. And they also start to have a very strong opinion about what they want out of life. And so they'll do things, and when you ask them about them, they will lie to you. They're cute, they're cuddly, and they're going to hell. <laughs> they just flat out lie. They do. And you could say to yourself, I fed you, I've changed you, I've done all the kind of good stuff for you that I need to do. I, I, why would you? And they just do because there's implicit in all of us. It's wired in. In moments of tension, when we feel afraid, shame kicks in, fear of disapproval kicks in. And we want to cover it up. And kids do that because it seems the right thing to do in the moment, and they don't know that a protracted experience of lying, if they continue to do that, ultimately is going to rob them of connection with the people they love. The whole reason they're lying is not to disappoint people, but if they continue to lie, it's actually going to destroy the relationship. They don't understand that. And the fear causes them to walk in shame, and they cover up their behavior. And the antidote to that is starting to owning up and being honest with yourself and honest with God and honest with the people in your relationships about where you are and what you're doing and taking responsibility. 
One of our deepest needs is to be loved. And one of our deepest fears is the fear of being seen for who we really are. Because here's the truth. You're a pretty good person, but you know better than anybody else in the room that you're not all put together right yet. You know it. And some of us are so aware of that, we live with a constant fear that we're going to be ultimately found out. That if people really knew us, they might not like us and accept us. And so we try all kinds of things to cover up this fear. Not just for them, but fear in our own selves that if we're fully discovered, then maybe somebody won't love us. That's what's at stake with that five-year-old who looks you right in the eyes and just lies to you. If you know it, I'm going to get in trouble. That's overly simplistic. If you know it, somebody I care about and I care what they think about me is going to discover something about me I don't want them to know. So I can't own up to it. And so shame and embarrassment leads to avoidance. It makes me nervous. You see this sometimes when people use humor. It's the class clown that won't let anybody get close to them. Don't let anybody get close to them. They use humor to make that happen. It's the sarcastic person that the moment a little bit of truth comes, there's a sarcastic reply and it becomes a tool ultimately as a cover they use. Oh, fig leaves are long gone. We're much more sophisticated than that now. We try to cover up our insecurities by presenting an image that we've got it all put together. Right clothes, right accessories, right words, right hair, right education, right car, right neighborhood, right words. But you know as well as I do when you look in the mirror, it's not all right. And for some of us, that drives us to shame and cover up. And ultimately, I don't know if you've thought about it or not, but ultimately that produces distance for you between the very people you want to be connected to. Today we see this. A lot of people hide online. If you read their Facebook page or you watch their Twitter feed or look at their Instagram pictures. They have nothing but fun and excitement all around them. But you and I both know that's not true. But they're so cool. And sometimes, every once in a while, you'll get a little insight that maybe all isn't quite as well put together as it seems to be online. So why are we afraid to tell people where we really are and who we really are? I think the answer to that question is in part found in the story of Adam and Eve right here. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. So the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. Remember before, naked and unashamed, now naked and ashamed. They're the same person. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Yeah, Fear will lead you to put distance. And you may not think about it that way. You may just think about it as, I'm not going to show who I really am. I'm not going to show what I've really done. But what's really going to happen is, is the intimacy you want in your marriage, if you can't be honest about you, that intimacy is going to be slippery. You're not going to be able to grab hold of it. There's actually going to be distance. And the antidote to that, again, is to take some responsibility for yourself to be honest, to be humble about what's going on, and to not rush to cover, but instead rush, rush to be honest. That's what God wanted with Adam 
when he asked, where are you? He wanted Adam to say, I did a bad thing. I take responsibility for it. Number two, you and I, I get defensive because I fear disapproval. Genesis chapter 3, verse 12. The man said, look at this, I love this. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? So Adam, why did you do this thing? She made me do it. It's her. Notice, it's not just, it's not just that he's blaming the woman. He actually implies back it's God's fault. The woman you gave me. That's not going to go very well for him. It's just not. You ever notice, guys, when you're arguing with your spouse, even with your teenage kids? You ever notice this? Like, you know, it's, it's, you're in that moment, and you're trying to talk about the thing, and you can't quite break through to the self-awareness where they go, you're right, I, I blew it, I took responsibility, you know, I need to do over. There's almost always the point in which they start going, before they can come in, they start going, it's you, it's your dumb rules, that's why I'm in trouble. You're unreasonable. Johnny's parents don't make him. And it's project out. Or you are talking with your spouse. And you're talking about the thing, whatever that thing is. It's the money thing. It's the intimacy thing. It's the kids thing. It's the time thing. Whatever the thing is. And it's never them. They don't own any responsibility. It's you when you talk about it. Of course, you know, when they come to you, guess what you tend to do? We all have a tendency. You have to resist this tendency. It's to point back and say, it's not me. We get defensive, and the reason is, is because we fear disapproval from people. Now we're not just hiding in step one. Now we're hurling insults and excuses onto other people. In this environment now, I have a fear of your disapproval, so I start pointing fingers at everybody else. And that's when you'll hear people say, but you did this. I may have done that, but you did this, and you did that. We move from excusing to accusing. And you've done this probably in your relationships. Some of you manage an environment at work, and you've seen people you had to talk to about simple performance issues. And when you wanted to talk about performance issues, they got all nervous and fearful. And then they start pushing out. It's him, it's her, it's you. If you'd have been more this. So the more critical person a person is, I've discovered, the more they fear disapproval. The more critical a person is, I have discovered, the more they fear disapproval. The more perfectionistic, the more they tend to attack somebody else. They always put somebody else down. When you come across that, what's going on in that person's mind most of the time is they fear the disapproval of other people. And in that fear, they begin to project out. That's exactly what Adam did. The woman you put here with me, and ultimately, God, this comes back on you. She just gave me the fruit. Had she not given me the fruit, I wouldn't have eaten it. Of course, there's no ownership that he's there present enough so that she has the ability to hand him the fruit that she's just eaten from. And the whole time that's going on, he hasn't said a word to her. He hasn't been her partner, her helper, saying, oh, wait, we're talking to a snake now? How did we get here? 
I think we should just back away slowly, you know? Or say, hey, look, just before you reach up and grab that thing, can we just talk about this? No, he's like there. But the moment the heat starts to come, it's you. You see this everywhere. Parents, you see it in your kids. Managers and leaders, you see it in the environments in which you lead. And when you look in the mirror, you might be able to see it in yourself. And the problem is, is this kind of fear will ruin your relationships. The fear of disapproval and the fear of exposure both actually produce in our relationships destruction. You don't have to go very far to see it. You can see it all around you. Number three then. I tend to, perhaps you get tend to, and maybe somebody else you've seen tends to get demanding because they feel, they fear losing control. They fear losing control. They had the idea they had control of their future, the control of their environment, control of the relationship. And I don't necessarily mean in some maniacal way. They just felt like they had the ability to speak with power and see immediate change. But now they're beginning to feel like that's not true. They lose control. In this case, Adam and Eve literally lost everything. They literally lost control of their future. They literally lost control of their destiny. And they got kicked out of paradise. Now they're feeling totally out of control because they are. And God begins to talk about the so what's here. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, you can read the surrounding verses. Here's the one we're going to look at for a moment. God says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now there's all kinds of books talking about this passage and what it might mean. And those are important conversations. But for our purpose here today, if you've ever wondered where the battle of the sexes began and why it's easy to fight with your spouse, here it is. This is it. And I used to like read this story and go, Adam and Eve were so stupid. And then I hit my fifth anniversary and realized, I'm Adam and Eve. I, I am. I, this story didn't only happen in the Bible. It happens all the time in marriages around the world for the last several thousand years. There will come a certain amount of friction in relationships. When they were in total harmony before, now it's just difficult. And all the misunderstanding between men and women and husbands and wives and boyfriends and girlfriends and all the confusion and conflict and all the jockeying for power and position and all of the tit for tat and all of this and all of that and all the bargaining of who's going to do what and all the control and all the who's going to run this and where's mine, all of that goes right back to this situation. And there's still going to be desire. It's just going to be hard. It's no, kind of, it's no fun being in that kind of a relationship. When you're not cooperating, but you're competing with one another. A certain amount of that can be fun, like when you're playing a board game or you're playing cards. But have you ever been like with a couple and you're playing cards and you can tell they don't really like each other? I'm not referring to anything specific. But Jill and I have imagined what it would be like to be with another couple at a table with just four people. And their level of competitiveness is so aggressive that you realize something else is going on here. 
And that sounds like a little bit of fun. Maybe you've seen some of that perhaps. At least if it's not you, it can be fun. But when it's you in that kind of pressure cooker of relationship turmoil, it's not fun at all. You don't have to go very far to begin to understand some of the dynamics that make relationships difficult. I'm suggesting to you that there's fear often at the center of what is really going on. And so what's the antidote then? The antidote, if you'll just let me give it to you in one word, the antidote is love. And I don't mean the kind of love that our world talks about often. I'm talking about the kind of love that flows from the character and the heart of God. The kind of love illustrated to us in 1 John 4.18, which I referred to last week. There is no fear in love, the Bible says. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. For relationships to go well, there has to be, I believe, a gravitating towards a deeper, more mature understanding of love. And you have to call yourself to that kind of love. Not like Adam and Eve who continued to pass the buck. This woman you gave me, the serpent he gave me. But the kind of responsibility-taking love that says, you know about you that you have room to grow. And so the next time you're talking to your spouse or your kids, you let the knowledge that you haven't fully arrived impact the language you use as you talk to them. It doesn't mean you don't talk. It doesn't mean you don't engage. It doesn't mean because we're all imperfect, nobody gets to deal with anything. That's foolishness. Just the opposite. Because we're all imperfect, we're all in this together, and we're all going to call each other to deeper and better kinds of love. And as we do it, we're going to take responsibility for ourselves. And that begins to make sense out of the craziness of our lives. I've shared this in other contexts, but I've never ever sat down with a couple who were fighting and walked through this exercise where it went well. Here's the exercise. So if you come to me for marriage counseling and I do this, I think it's going bad or I wouldn't do this. Here's what I do. I grab out a piece of paper and I say, here's a pie that represents all the conflict in your marriage. And I often will look to the guy first and I say, here's a pen. Would you draw a portion of the pie that is literally 100% you? So it's not all you, it's clearly both of you. But what portion of this pie here is 100% you? Conversation ender, right there. Nobody ever picks up the pen and goes, you know, Ben, I think I'm 42% and she's 58%. Nobody does that. Nobody does that. Nobody says, I'm 4% and she's 96 Now, I've had a couple people in kind of in frustration go, and they, they try to make those lines of the pie like that. They pull out a microscope, and they're like trying to get it. The truth is it's very difficult for us to take responsibility. I'm just curious. We don't know. It's speculation. But I wonder how the story of the Bible would go different if when God called to Adam, where are you? Adam would have said, hey, before we get rolling here, I did a bad thing. I did a bad thing. And I didn't do what you told me to do. And I want to blame her, and I want to blame you, but the truth is, it's me. I can tell you when I am doing marriage counseling, and I don't do much of it anymore, because I found people just get ticked at me, and once I know their stuff, they don't want to see me anymore, and they quit coming to church. It's true. Yeah, it's true. 
when people when I know people's stuff, they don't like to come to church anymore. So we outsource all that stuff right now. You can come to me, we'll talk, I'll pray with you, and I'll send you to a counselor. Glad to do it, all right? So I have found that when I did a lot of that, what happened was nobody wanted to take responsibility. So then how do we begin to live every day in God's love? This won't take us a long time, but I want to walk you through two big steps you can take. Here's the first one. Every day you can begin to surrender. You can begin to surrender your heart to God. Surrender my heart to God. When Job's friends were talking to him about life, one of the things they offered Job was these words. And these words are powerful words. They describe the way God tends to work. Look at Job 11. Job's friend said, Yet if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him and put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then, so if you do these things, then free of fault, you will lift up your face. You'll stand firm without fear. You'll surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as waters gone by. Life will be brighter than noonday, and darkness will become like morning. You will be secure because there is hope. You'll look about you and take your rest in safety. You will lie down with no one to make you afraid. That's not a bad image of the kind of life that God wants for us. And Job's friends were encouraging Job to surrender fully to God, knowing that when you do, good things happen to you. I think when we talk about the heart, what we're talking about here is basically the seat of your emotions, your soul, if you will. What I'm asking you to do when I say surrender your heart to God is every day get up and remember that you're walking in boldness with God because of his love for you can make all the difference. And that brings me to the next point. Every day remember the way God loves me. For me to not give in to fear is for me to walk every day in surrendering my heart to God because I can trust him. He's not there to destroy me. He doesn't want to shame me. He's not there to bring reproach. He only means good for me. And I can do that in part because I can remember the way he loves me. Let's talk about those things very quickly. When we talk about the way God loves you, if you're his child, here's what we mean. It means you're completely accepted. Completely accepted. 2 Corinthians 5.18. All this is from God. All the salvation, all the reconciliation that God's done. It comes from him. And he reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God reconciled us. God covered the gap. Why? Because he accepts us. He knew you. He knew what you would do. He knew every sin you would ever commit. And he still looked at you and said, even though you're going to commit your life to me right now, I know you're not going to be perfect and it's okay. I accept you as you are. Here's some good news. You don't need everybody's approval to be happy. And God's already approved of you. You don't need everybody's approval to be happy. And God's already approved of you. He sent his son He sent his son to show you how much he wants a relationship with you. That even the bad stuff in our lives, our own sins, would not drive us away. They would actually compel us closer. The good news is is you don't need everybody's approval. And the bad news is is you're not going to get it anyway. You're not. Leaders, you don't have to work yourself crazy 
so that everybody approves of all the decisions you make. There's going to be a certain amount of disapproval even when you do the right thing. There are going to be moments that your kids aren't going to believe you did the right thing. They are. And you don't need their approval. Part of the reason why you don't need their approval is you already have the approval of the one person that it matters to. God's not looking at your Facebook to get a sense of who you are and what's going on in your life. Now he looked at the work Jesus has done and says, look, that's how much I love you. Be then. I can remember the love of God in this way. I'm unconditionally loved. So I'm completely accepted and I'm unconditionally loved. Isaiah 54. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken. Nor my covenant of peace removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. There are two major characteristics of God's love. It's consistent when we're not, and it's unconditional even as we change. God's not fickle. He's not unpredictable. You can depend on what you know he's going to do. When you come to him in humble repentance, he accepts that. I remember one of my friends saying to me growing up that he never knew if his dad was going to hug him or slug him. And even as a young kid, I knew that that kind of inconsistency wasn't a good thing. And as I've gotten older, I've discovered that inconsistent parents produce insecure kids, right? But that's the good thing about God. God's not that way. His love is consistent. It's unconditional. God doesn't say, if you'll do these things, I love you. He doesn't say simply, I love you because. And then he fills in the blank with a list of your to-dos. He says, I love you, period. And I love you in spite of the fact you can't make God stop loving you. He's never going to love you more than he loves you now. And he's never going to love you less. You don't ever need to ask, will God love me today? That kind of a knowledge of the unconditional love of God can actually begin to speak into your fears that make you act all kinds of foolishness in your relationships. And you can know that no matter what anybody else thinks, I have security in my not fickle, consistent God who loves me. Let her see then. I'm totally forgiven. Romans 8, 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You're totally, there's no condemnation. And so if there's no condemnation, why are you carrying shame? Why? If he has forgiven you, You have to remind yourself that that kind of love means you don't have to walk in the shadow of shame. You don't have to try to cover it up. You can be honest. I was talking with a fellow pastor, and he was describing a period of life where he was just kind of spiraling. Work was hard, and people weren't nice, and the language pastors use when they get together is they, 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 they say this phrase, sheep bite. And when you're around a pastor and they say that, everybody goes, hmm, like, hmm, we know. And so things are kind of spiraling for him. And in that moment of the pressure cooker of his own emotions and the reality around him, he made some dumb, dumb choices. And like God often does, he allowed just enough of that to rise to the surface and so he drive this guy to repentance. And that's exactly what happened. And 
Mechanically, what happened is somebody came to him and said, hey, I'm a little worried about, and he filled in the blank. The details are irrelevant here. And in that moment, that pastor said to me, I felt every bit of the desire to just cover, you know, the duck and hide. The duck and hide. But he said something rose up, and he looked at that guy who said the thing to him that was true, and he said, you're right. You're right. There's an attitude. There's a thing there. You're right. And in the admission of that, he said, where he thought there would be fear and reproach and simply disappointment, there was the overwhelming sense that forgiveness was offered to him through Christ, just like he had preached to everybody else would be there. Now, I offer that not because you're pastors and not because I'm just self-preaching, although there's a little bit of that. But for some of you, you've been walking with Jesus so long, you think you're supposed to not sin anymore. And that fear, that untruth, makes you hesitant to go to God and admit your sin and receive then the forgiveness that he offers so freely. It's an incredible deception the enemy works. Somehow you've been walking with Jesus so long, you should be past this. And we take that kernel of truth, perhaps, and then we turn it into a lie that says, and since I should be past it, I'm now hesitant to ask forgiveness of it. I'm hesitant to, one more time, grab hold of the grace that is offered through God. But the truth is, is you and I are forgiven, and forgiveness is freely offered to us. So then D, I'm considered extremely valuable by God. Now, I've thought about this. There's two things that kind of create value. Who owns a thing and how much somebody's willing to pay for it? If I brought my toothbrush up here and I put it beside John Lennon's toothbrush and I said, let's take bids, who do you think is going to go higher? Some weirdo in the crowd is going to buy John Lennon's for $10,000. I say weirdo because I don't really care about John Lennon, but somebody does. Right? Somebody famous, their stuff... Their sweaty towel from the game, $10,000. Because of whose it was, not because there's any intrinsic value in the thing. And the other thing that makes value is how much somebody's willing to pay for it. When you think about that in your relationship with God, he makes it clear he owns you. And that's enough. But he also makes it clear that he paid a very high price. The language in the Bible about Jesus' death and resurrection is there's a ransom that has been paid So when I find myself wrestling with whether or not God will love me and what does the love of God mean, and I have to remind myself about it, I can go through the exercise of reminding myself that I'm totally forgiven. I'm extremely valuable. I'm completely accepted. I'm unconditionally loved. And if I'll focus on those every day and perhaps begin my day with that, it allows me then, when I come into those normal sin moments, those normal pressure cooker things, those relational dynamics, it gives me a certain fortitude and strength. The truth of these statements speaks against the lies of my reality. and gives me a certain fortitude and strength to move forward. It's what happens when your employees, managers, believe that you're really for them, and then you ask them to take a hill with you. They know that even if they fail, they're on the team. 
That's what happens, parents, when you look at your kids and you say, this is going to be rough, but I'll be with you. And you have enough credibility in the relationship that they then find strength because of the quality of the love they've experienced in the past begins to speak into the now and gives them strength for the future. My hunch is, is that for many of us, we haven't focused enough on the love of God that we've been given, and it causes us burden and problem and pain in the moment. But what if today and then tomorrow and the next day, you got up every day and you surrendered yourself fully to God, and as you did it, you reminded yourself that God loves you completely. It might give you room for even to offer the love that you've been given to other people. The proof that you are beginning to grab hold of the love of God with consistency and clarity is that it begins to bubble out of you onto other people. And this is what I hope for you. It's a sign of maturity that the love of God is beginning to bubble out of your life. Look at what the scripture says. Accept one another just as Christ has accepted you in order to bring praise to God. This is when love gets contagious. It's when one person in the marriage says, I got work to do, and whether you do it or not, I'm going to do the work on me I'm supposed to do. And the other person says, ideally, hopefully, hey, that's inspiring, and if you can do that, I'll work on me. Man, when I've had people sit down and they're both willing, it's amazing the speed of healing and health we can run to. Fear begins to give way to boldness, and change becomes natural. This is how the power of the resurrection works. Because you can trust that the love of God works. That it's not just present, but it's powerful. It will show up even in your relationships. And it will begin to break the stranglehold of fear that would keep you acting all kinds of foolishness. And instead, it will put you in a place of boldness and confidence and acceptance. Knowing that your heavenly father has got you in the palm of his hands. Let's take out some connect cards right now and move forward on a couple of these things. I want to give you a chance right now to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior if you haven't done that yet. To put your faith and trust in him. To believe that even though he looks at you and says, where are you? And he knows you've blown it. That that engagement is an opportunity for you to come back into relationship with him. The Bible says it this way, that you admit that you're a sinner. And you put your trust in the work Jesus has done on the cross and in his resurrection to save you. And if you'd like to do that, I'd ask you to take your pen and check next step A. That says, I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. When our offering buckets come by at the end of the service, you'll just put those in, and we'll communicate with you about it. When we pray in a second, I'm going to give you a chance to talk to God and say, God, I'm a sinner. I don't have anything to bring. I can't cover my own sin. No amount of good works I have is going to fix it. I want to trust the work you've done. And I want to rely completely on the love you demonstrated. I want to trust you. We believe that if you'll pray that, God will in a moment transfer you from being disconnected from him to being fully connected to him. Or how about next step B? Today I'm choosing to be baptized. Next week, we have a couple folks getting baptized. And if you'd like to do that, you just check the box and we'll communicate with you. And if you've done that in the last few weeks and we're trying to reach out to you, um, just know that we're not trying to pressure you. We're just simply trying to help you move forward on a thing you wanted to move forward on anyway. If you have questions, that's the right time to ask them. And we just want to help you move forward in your own faith. 
How about next step C? Here's what it says. The truth is, is I've been too careless about my sin. So would you pray with me as I do business with God and as I work on the relationships in my life? You'll check this. I don't even know what the details are, but we will pray with you that you'll take responsibility and that as you do it, it'll show up in your, your relationships. And since you can't control somebody else, what you can do is, is you can move with humility towards God and find that he'll accept you and take you and work on you. So if you've been a little careless about your sin and it's showing up and it's demonstrating its ugly head in your relationships, do business with God on it. Just be honest. Now next step, D and E, deal with life around here. It says, hey, I'd like to be one of the 32 people who serve for LeaderCast. You check that, we'll send you the link. And the first 32 to respond, those will be the ones that get the free ticket. And then the next step, E says, you can count me in for the 4C rummage sale and I'll bring my stuff and we'll send you emails related to this as we move forward on our value of serving here, near, and far. Would you pray with me right now about these things? Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, God, that the darkness that entered humanity in Genesis chapter 3 is conquered by the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And even though we're all kind of born into that situation of darkness and brokenness, the resurrection is powerful enough to touch our lives, even down to our relationships. So God, would you let the truth that you are alive, that your love is real and powerful, would you let it impact our hearts today? Would you let that love call us fully into surrender of your leadership in our life? God, I ask that by your spirit, you would make your love known to us in a way that words and academic engagement cannot do. That by your sweet Holy Spirit, we would feel your arms of love. We would sense your gentle smile. God, even for those of us that right now are being disciplined by your spirit, I pray behind the discipline, we would hear your love. God, it's true that you're a good, good father. Like every good parent, you correct and you develop those you love. So we bring ourselves to that process here now to the best of our ability. Some of us, Lord, have to be honest and say we've been careless about our relationship with you. We've been careless about our sin. But in this moment, we're doing our business with you. Lord, I pray with those that are saying, Jesus, wash away my sins. Cover me by your shed blood. And I trust the work that you accomplished on the cross and through your resurrection to secure my relationship to my heavenly Father. God, and I pray that as this church reaches out into our community through the various ways we do it, that the unique love of our heavenly Father would shine through our lives. And that while people may not be impressed by our perfection, they would, God, be drawn to the love of you working through us. I pray all this in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.